0: We had a great introduction on daniel uh, from our brother alan uh, a few weeks back and then had some good messages on daniel one two and three in the past three weeks um as far as introduction go i have a handout i didn't want to give it out beforehand because i know if you give a handout beforehand people tend to get distracted looking at the handout instead of listening to the message and not that the message is necessarily amazing, but still, I thought it would be better for people to get it afterwards. But it's got some good background information, and a lot of it is the same type of thing that Alan went over. Um, but as I was studying the book of Daniel, you know, I was just amazed how much this book has been attacked over the years in terms of believing whether or not it really was written by Daniel, whether or not the things in it are really accurate whether or not it was written when it claims to have been written or whether or not it was basically a pious forgery written many years later. And I think it's important for us to be willing to grapple intellectually with those things. You know, we, we have a faith, that is true, but it's not a blind faith. And so I think it's worthwhile to think about those things. So I put together some material that might help you as you think about those things in that handout. I also put together uh, a list of some good commentaries that I used uh, in putting together this message and that some of you might find helpful uh, going forward. And I put some application questions down that also perhaps some of you might find helpful. So please avail yourself of that. There's about 20 copies, so there's probably not quite enough for every single person here. But, you know, if everyone, in a while, a couple shares. There should be plenty of copies. Those who are listening online, drop me an email. I'd be happy to uh, email you a PDF and uh, send you a copy of this. And anyone here, of course, same thing. Uh, So this is 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. This is not really per se a 4th of July message, even though it's Daniel chapter four on the 4th of July. Um, But there is a little bit of a connection because 4th of July, what are we doing? We're remembering the Declaration of Independence when we first as a country said, we're, we want to have our freedom. And at that time it was freedom from the colonial rule of the British Empire. Um, the Jews in Daniel's day did not have freedom. This was not a time of their Declaration of Independence. Uh, this was a time in a sense in which they were in bondage. And so it's sort of the flip side of the Declaration of Independence in a sense. Uh, they were under Babylonian rule. Babylon ruled the known world of the time in the Mediterranean area. They were, you know, the big cheese, so to speak. And uh, you know, Israel was completely under Babylonian rule. And there's some questions that they might have asked themselves. They might have asked themselves, "Does God still care about us? You know, has He just forsaken us completely? Is He still in control? Maybe this has happened because you know this sort of slipped through the cracks. He didn't see this one coming, or..." Is it really worthwhile to, to follow him and trust him? Okay, maybe at this point, since we're under Babylonian rule, it really doesn't matter if we know God. It really doesn't matter if we follow him or not. The book of Daniel is largely designed to address those types of questions. Um, and it answers those questions. And I think we've seen that just bringing us up to date so far. It talks about the value of trusting God in Daniel chapter one, with Daniel and his friends being willing to put their faith in God, uh, you know, possibly with a price. If things didn't work out well, God honored that. In Daniel chapter three, when Daniel's three friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, are willing to trust God, even though they knew it might be a f- mean a fiery and painful death. Uh, and again, God honors that. And so it is worthwhile to trust God. In chapter two, you see his sovereign rule, both in the present, but going forward into the future. He's still in control. And here um, in chapter four, We see his ability to humble a proud and powerful ruler, reminding them and us that he is still in control. And I think that's something that we all need to realize in our day. So I'm going to start with Daniel chapter uh 4, verse 1, you're not going to see that I have a Bible open because for convenience, I've taken all the Bible verses and just put them into my notes just to make life go a little bit quicker for me. Um, also, you might note that I may occasionally skip a word or maybe even a verse here or there. Please feel free to follow along in your Bible. I'm not trying to take liberties with the word of God. I'm just trying to sort of stay focused, but feel free to follow along. So Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men, Of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs? How mighty are his wonders? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. So this is obviously being written by a man who is excited about God, excited about who God is, excited about how powerful God is if you've read the prior chapters at this point, you should really have this huge question mark over your your head, so to speak. You should be thinking, what happened? This isn't the Nebuchadnezzar that I came to know and love or know and hate or whatever, but this isn't the Nebuchadnezzar that I knew. Um, This seems very, very strange, and the rest of the chapter really tells us, well, what happened? How did Nebuchadnezzar end up at this place? Now, by the way, we don't know exactly when this happened. There's some signs, given that this seems to be at the end of a long building program. This is probably towards the end of his reign. Historians have found a seven-year period where he didn't seem to be active militarily. That might really fit in with what happens in this chapter. Um, so it's probably towards the end of his life. Maybe he's 60, 70 years old. Um, and Daniel 4, you'll find, in a sense, is sort of structured like a gospel tract. So I'm not sure how many of you have ever read or used gospel tracts. Um, but, you know, typically in a gospel track, you know, you've got some type of quick introduction, which is what we just read. Uh, you've got the before part of the story, you know, if it's a, if it's a testimony track telling you how someone came to know uh, Christ. You've got the before part of the story. Here's what my life was like before. Then you've got the middle part of the story. And here's, you know, how I encountered God and how he worked in my life, perhaps through great difficulty. And then you've got the after And here's what God ended up doing in my life and how much I appreciate him. So that's really, in a sense, the structure of Daniel 4, you know, before, during and after. That's sort of how we're going to be dropping through this. So Daniel chapter 4, verse 5, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the uh, visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might n- make known to me in the interpretation, and they were unable to. Verse 8, but finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him. <clears throat> so he has this dream, and it apparently terrified him. The language actually in the Hebrew would speak is, is stronger than it appears in the English. This dream apparently terrified him. He brought in the wise men. It's interesting he left Daniel to last, maybe because he was afraid Daniel would tell him the truth and he wasn't quite sure he wanted to hear the truth. This wasn't a fun dream to have. Um, let's move to verse 10. In verse 10 of uh, Daniel chapter 4, I was looking. He's talking about the dream now. <clears throat> there was a tree in the midst of the earth little bit further on, and its height reached to the sky. So this is not a normal tree. This is a mountain, you know, high tree. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. All living cre- uh, creatures fed themselves from it. A little further on in verse 13, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out. So this was an urgent command. He shouted out, And spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him, do you notice the shift now? It was talking about a tree. Now let him. So now we're talking about a person. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth and let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. That Those periods of time, we're not strictly told what they are, but it's probably meant to be years, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This must have been a very impressive uh, dream. I mean, we've got some beautiful trees in the back, uh, you know, behind our chapel here. And my family and I have traditionally done a lot of hiking, We spent a lot of time out in the woods, so much so that um, when my oldest daughter spoke her first word, it was as we were pulling into the parking lot here in our accustomed spot at the back of the parking lot facing into the woods. And she looked out and she went, Z's, Z's, well, that, that was trees because there's all these wonderful, impressive trees back there. But this was a huge tree. This was a mountain-sized tree. This was a tree that was so big that, you know, we, if, it, if the tree was back here and we were where we live, you know, say about 10 miles away, we'd be able to see it very, very clearly with no problems. It's a huge, impressive tree. It's meant to represent Nebuchadnezzar and the glory of his reign and yet that tree is going to get cut down, and that obviously does not bode well for Nebuchadnezzar, as I think he understood. The purpose of this is for people to recognize that the Most High, which was a common name for God Almighty in Daniel, is the ruler of all. Uh, It mentions, by the way, that he sets over it the lowliest of men, and you wonder, well, what is that supposed to mean? Well, I think it's pointing to the fact it's not necessarily that literally, you know, the Lord looks around, tries to figure out who is like the the scum of the earth and set that person, you know, in rule. No, it's more the idea that those who are set as rulers, those who are allowed to become rulers are not intrinsically great people. Um, They may think they're intrinsically great people, but they're not. They're not really great people. The only one who is truly great is God Almighty. is the Most High. Uh, chapter 4, verse 19, if you will. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. And it goes on and talks about how appalled he was. He, he actually really probably had come to care for and love Nebuchadnezzar. He had worked with this man for decades at this point. And even though you know, the man was a pagan, and a godless man in many ways, he probably had still come to appreciate many things about him and really cared about him. Um, But the king encourages him. In verse 20, um, he starts to give the interpretation, the tree that you saw, moving to verse 22, it is you, O king. uh, Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord, the king, that you be driven from mankind, your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you come to recognize that it is heaven that rules. So Daniel goes on, which I'm not going to read for the sake of time to advise um, Nebuchadnezzar to repent to show mercy towards others. He might have been thinking perhaps of the king of Nineveh who had heard this message of of judgment and had repented, and God had been merciful. But apparently Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really take that advice to heart. Unfortunately, so we flash forward now a year, twelve months later, um, chapter four, verse twenty nine, and twelve months later, he that is Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and Babylon, from what I understand, you know, from what we know from archeology, span was amazing. Glorious palaces, many of them either renovated or built by Nebuchadnezzar during his rule. Uh, Glorious gates, walls that is said were so large and so massive that you could drive a chariot around the top of them. Hanging gardens, uh, you know, at least as far as we know from legend, we don't know for sure if they were there, but they sound glorious if they were there. Babylon was amazing. And Nebuchadnezzar was very proud of this, verse 30. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence for the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Do you notice all the my's and "eyes" in there? He's very, very impressed with himself and what he has accomplished. And he has accomplished a lot, but not very humble. While the word was in the king's mouth, A voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed, and you will be driven from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and all the things that had been predicted exactly is what happened. Okay, and he wasn't driven away from mankind, by the way, in the sense that, you know, he, he was sent to some kind of desolate place. It was the idea that because he no longer could function in human society, he could no longer exist in human society. And so though God had been very gracious to him and given him a full year to repent, he hadn't. He had arrogant pride, which, of course, is very true of many today, right? I mean, you you look around. If you're honest, you look within there's a lot of arrogance and a lot of pride in people's hearts and minds uh, today. Now, what actually happened to Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, we can see what happened. He he started to act as if he was an animal. That, now, there are mental illnesses known today that can explain that, and, and maybe that's what happened. He ended up with this mental imbalance that was a normal, natural thing to happen, but God just sort of knew it was going to happen and planned for that. And it's got various names, zoanthropy, boanthropy, and that could explain this but it doesn't need to explain it and i think that's important for us to understand we have a tendency when we see miracles in the bible even as believers we have a tendency when we see miracles to want to try to find some type of naturalistic explanation for that miracle Oh, well, the miracle of the Red Sea, it probably really was a low body of water. And there was a big wind, and that explains it. Or, you know, crossing the Jordan, well, maybe it was a little bit low that time of year, and they just got their feet wet. We want to come up with natural ways to explain miracles, unexpected things happening in the Bible. And God certainly, being as great as he is, if he wants to use natural means, he can, but he doesn't need to. This is the ultimate first cause of the universe. This is the creator. This is the one who put all the natural laws, as we call them, into place. And if he wants to do a little twiddling and bending of those laws to accomplish his purposes by executive fiat, so to speak, he can do that. And so, however it played out, whether it was through natural means, quote unquote, or supernatural means, quote unquote. Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in this unenviable position for probably seven years, probably living in some type of royal park where he was protected, of living like he was an animal. He wasn't an animal. He still would have looked like a human being. This isn't like a werewolf or something like this, but he he was living and acting as if he was an animal. Verse 34 of Daniel 4. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, "What hast Thou done?" At that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored, which, by the way, is probably sort of a miracle in and of itself. Seven years living like an animal, and they still allow him to become king again. Um, But God had promised that that would be the case, and that had been worked out, maybe partly through Daniel and some loyal nobles. Um, Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is how Nebuchadnezzar got to the point that we saw at the beginning of the chapter. This is how Nebuchadnezzar was transformed. And you think about the journey of Nebuchadnezzar. If you go back again, which I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time, but if you mentally go back to the first three chapters and think about what was Nebuchadnezzar like, as we see him portrayed in Daniel chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three, excuse me a moment. He was a proud man. In chapter one, he had just defeated um, huge armies. He had won a great battle at Carchemish. He had defeated the Assyrians. He had defeated the Egyptians. He had conquered Israel. He pretty much was convinced that he um, was personally the greatest military leader out there and that his God was the greatest God. And so that's, that's the um, Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel chapter one. By the end of Daniel chapter two, and by the way, he would have thought of, of the God of the Israelites as nothing, just another one of the many defeated gods, small g. By the end of chapter two, after Daniel interprets the dream to him in chapter two, he's changing his tune a little bit. He's starting to say that God is great. Like, oh, maybe I was a little bit hasty in my consideration before. Maybe this God of the Israelites, maybe he is really a great God after all. He's still not his God. He's still not the greatest God. But you know, he's he's impressed. By the end of Daniel chapter three, he's talking about God as being uniquely powerful above all other gods, able to deliver in a way that no other god can do. And yet, it's still not his God. It's just a God, a powerful God, one that he's very careful to not want to get on the bad side of. um, But it's still not his God. Uh, And all those, of course, describe, describe various stages that different people that we may encounter in life are at and that we ourselves perhaps are either at or have been at in our life. It's only when God humbles Nebuchadnezzar through this period of intense suffering. I don't know even the right word. I can't imagine what it would be like. He probably had some corner of his mind that was still sane because otherwise how could he have repented, but somehow trapped inside this body That is acting like an animal. I cannot imagine what it must have been like to have been this person. And he suffered greatly, but God used it for good in his life. He came to his senses. He acknowledged that God's worthy of praise and devotion. I think he came to true saving faith. Um, And that's debated among believers and Bible scholars. Some would say, no, he didn't really come to true saving faith. He just came to a greater appreciation of the greatness of God. But you listen to his language, especially those first few verses at the beginning of the chapter. This doesn't sound like a man who has been impressed by God and is unwillingly bowing the knee. This sounds like a man who is happy about the fact that he's been humbled, who is delighted about the fact that he's been humbled, and he was just so excited. He talks about what God has done for him, if you read those first few chapters again. He doesn't talk about what God has done to him. He talks about what God has done for him. That sounds like the language of faith in my mind. That sounds like someone who has entered into a true relationship with God Almighty, which, if it's true, by the way, is, is amazing. I mean, there's not too many instances of Gentiles, non-Jews, coming to faith, In the Old Testament, I'm sure there were many other instances of it, but we don't have much in the way of recorded instances of it in the Old Testament. You know, we have people like Daniel himself and David and Abraham and Moses and Samuel, uh, who all obviously had a personal relationship with God by faith. But Gentiles, that's unusual. And a Gentile king, that's very unusual. But God had worked in his life and it's a wonderful story. So having said all that and covered the story Now let's think about what are some of the take-home messages that we can take from this for our own lives, because I think that there's a number. This isn't just a story to read and go, wow, that was a really cool story. That's nice. Let's go get some dinner. Um, So first of all, I'd like to ask you to consider where are you in your journey? Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar went through a journey, and very often coming to faith is a journey. I believe that faith in Christ is an instantaneous thing in that, you know, it's not like you get saved over a period of time. You receive Christ by faith as Savior. The Spirit of God comes to live within you. You're born again to new life. That, that, that happens in a moment. But the process that leads up to that can take quite a while. Okay. I know I can look back in my life and I can see how God was working. Let's see, probably from the time I was around 14 or 15, if I'm remembering right, up until the time that I turned 22, before I finally came to Christ. So what is that, seven or eight years? And I'm sure many of you can look back in your lives and say, yeah, that was a process. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home, and you came to Christ after several years of input from your parents, from others. Maybe you came to Christ later, and maybe you haven't come to Christ yet, but very often it is a process. So one thing you should really ask yourself is, where am I at? Are you still where Daniel, where um, Nebuchadnezzar was early in the book of Daniel? Proud, full of your own self-importance and self-sufficiency. That characterizes a lot of our society. I saw an interesting quote, um, this fellow on CNN, who I've never heard him, to be honest. I don't really watch CNN much. But uh, Chris Cuomo, apparently the brother of um, the New York governor, Um, He was quoted in a July 2020 program saying, you don't need help from above. It's within us. We don't need help from above. Everything we need is in us. We are self-sufficient. God is not necessary for either us individually or as a society. This is what many would say. Many would probably add, he probably doesn't exist. And if he does exist, he's probably either unwilling or unable to do anything of consequence in our lives individually Or in a society. And that's where many people, of course, are at. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar was at. And maybe that's where you're at. But God did a work to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And very often that's how people end up coming to Christ, Uh, because God does a work to break that person and to show them their need of Him. And and maybe God is doing that in your life or or that of a, a friend or a family member right now. That person's in the process of being broken. Uh, Not because God is evil or mean or anything like that, and not even because all suffering comes from God. There's a lot of painful and difficult things in life that are just part of the fact that we live in a messed up world full of sinners. Um, And yet God can use those things, even those painful, sometimes evil things that he may not have sent, so to speak, but he can use those things in a person's life um, to break that person, to humble that person, and cause them to realize how much they need him. Um, and we do need him, you know, familiar verses in, in Romans uh, chapter three and, and chapter six, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's something that Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize. He didn't think he was very far short of the glory of God. Um, verse 23 of chapter six says the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Um That's not a verse, obviously, that Nebuchadnezzar would have known, but the idea that he needed God was definitely something that he came to realize. Jesus Christ himself gave a wonderful invitation. Some of my favorite verses in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, the Lord Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And again, sometimes it's the difficulties of life that cause us to realize how weary and heavy laden we are. And sometimes that happens when you're still pretty young. And I, the Lord Jesus says, will give you rest. What an amazing invitation to find rest. Some people claim that Christianity is a crutch. Becoming a believer, becoming a Christian just means that you're weak. They're right. Right? They're they're correct. Because but the part that they're missing is we're all weak. We're all weak. It doesn't matter how strong you think you are, doesn't matter if you have bulging biceps, doesn't matter if you're rich, doesn't matter if you're powerful. Ultimately, we all desperately need God, and by the time you get to death, you usually realize that, but sadly, I think a lot of people are way too late. The Lord promises rest. If we recognize our need of him, if we turn to him, if we accept his provision and his death in our place, accept his invitation, receive him, as it says in John chapter 1, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, we can have life. In Him, I hope. By the way, if you're already a believer, you're not sort of just tuning this portion out. Um, it's it's tempting to do that, isn't it? Because because you know all this stuff already. Um, but a, it's always encouraging to remember, and b, as you listen to things like that, sometimes it makes it easier for us to share the gospel with others. And so, when I hear someone preaching the gospel, I try to listen carefully because I figure maybe I'll get some ideas I can use when I'm talking to someone else. <clears throat> okay, so. I look around here. I have no idea who might be listening to this sometime in the future as they download it from the terror road website. I know there's millions of people. Well, okay, maybe not millions, but, but some people who do, I listened to the messages that I missed while I was on vacation and I appreciated them very much. Um, Both Dan's and uh, Paul's messages. I really appreciate those a lot, but looking around here, I don't see anyone who I know personally that doesn't know Christ. And I can't look into your hearts. I don't know everyone who's here. And even the people I do know, some of you may, I may think you're a believer, maybe you're not. But I see a lot of people here who are believers. So what do we do? How do we apply that? Three, three different things real quickly that came to my mind um, and the Lord spoke to my heart about as I was going through this. One is a question. And some of these questions, by the way, are in the handout that you're going to get a chance to get if you want it. How often, how often do I, how often do we gladly acknowledge the Lord's greatness and goodness and our own need of him as Nebuchadnezzar did. We're self-sufficient people. We like to be able to say, I do it myself. I can handle this. And maybe sometimes we're sort of forced grudgingly to admit that we need help, but most of the time we don't really rejoice in that fact. We we like being self-sufficient. And some of that Is natural. It's normal. As you become an adult, you go from childhood to adulthood. And part of coming into adulthood is being able to be more self-sufficient and do things on your own and not always have to get mom or dad or someone else to do things for you. That's normal. That's natural. But that attitude carried to an extreme can be dangerous. And I think what God wants for us is for us to gladly recognize our need of dependence upon him. Recognize how much greater and wiser and better he is than we are and how much we desperately need him. Um, And to me, that's a real doorway to growth in the Christian life, recognizing our desperate, continual need of him. Some familiar verses in Philippians chapter two, verse five, speaks of this and concerning the Lord Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Do you notice it says he humbled himself? So he wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't like us. He didn't need God to humble him. God is very, very well able to humble. If you're full, if you are a believer and you're full of pride and you think it's all about you, trust me, God is probably going to start to work to seek to break you. Not because he doesn't like you or care about you, because he does love you and care about you. And he recognizes the importance of learning that it's all about him and not all about you. You desperately need to know that. And he will do what it takes to get you there. How much better if we humble ourselves? The Lord Jesus didn't need to be humbled. I mean, if there's anyone who had a reason not to be humble, it was the Lord Jesus, right? I mean, he's the son of God. I'm not the son of God. He's intrinsically great, worthy of praise. That does not describe me. Um, he had every reason to be proud. And yet instead, he had a humble spirit. And you see that throughout his life. He had a meek and gentle and humble spirit. And he was totally dependent on his father at all points during his life which is amazing and wonderful to see. Read the gospels, uh, wonderful to look at the character of Christ and also to remember that the Lord would ask us to be humble, to be dependent, to humble ourselves. And in 1 Peter 5, it says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Of course, one of the benefits of that, it goes on to say, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. If you're living a life of humility, of dependence upon God, then you can give your problems to him because it's not all on you. He can t- he can help you. How do you live this out? Um, it's probably a lot of different things. One of the things that came to my mind as I was thinking about this is being willing to often bring my concerns and my decisions to, to the Lord. To often come to him, and you know, like anything, you can carry this to an extreme. Okay, do I really need? to stop and spend five minutes in prayer in deciding whether or not I have a hamburger at the barbecue or a hot dog? I don't think so. And I don't think there's any scriptural basis to think that's the case, okay? You you can get paralyzed sometimes if you carry some things in the Christian life to an extreme. But are you willing to be sensitive to the leading of the spirit of God? Are you going to spend time in the Bible so you have an idea of what God's will might be? And are you going to be sensitive to the spirit of God that when you get that little prompting, maybe I should pray about this rather than just like go and decide on my own, then do that. I mean, and not just the huge decisions, you know, obviously we should be praying when we decide, should I get married and to whom, you know, where am I going to live? What job am I going to take? What church am I going to fellowship at? Those are fairly big decisions. Do I have children? Big decisions. Um, But there's smaller decisions in life that are still quite important that we really should be asking God's guidance about. Um, And it's a way that we can live out humility and dependence on the Lord. Number two, um, spreading the word, helping others. Okay, it is not just all about us. If you're a believer, uh, you have opportunities, and God expects you to take those opportunities to help others. Nebuchadnezzar did not come to the point he did in a vacuum, right? Nebuchadnezzar didn't go from being the proud ruler of the beginning of Daniel 1 to the humble man of the end of Daniel 4, that did not happen in a vacuum. Daniel was very evidently used greatly in his life. Daniel's three friends who we don't think about too much. We talk about daring to be a Daniel, which is really great. But we don't talk about dare to be a Meshach, you know. Um, they were used in um, in Nebuchadnezzar's life. We can be used in other people's lives. And we need to be willing to look for opportunities. This past year, year and a half. It's been miserable in so many ways in our lives and that of sometimes even worse than that of other people who have lost loved ones, who have dealt with fear and difficulty. It's taught us, if nothing else, I think that life is uncertain, that you can't be sure. And I think it's taught a lot of people in our society. Life is unsure. You can't be sure you're going to be around next year. You can't be sure that your friends and family are going to be around next year. You can't really ultimately be sure of anything. There's an uncertainty to life, and because of that uncertainty, that should drive us to fulfill the mission that we've been given as a church in, you know, the end of um, Matthew 28, uh, to reach others with the gospel and to disciple. You know, we're, we're called not just to see people come to Christ, that's incredibly important, but also to disciple and build up those people and help them to learn what it means to depend on and walk with and grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So we need to look for opportunities Uh, to do that. And there's all kinds of ways you can do that if you're open to that. You can be involved in a home Bible study, whether evangelistic or discipling or a mix, mix of the two. You could host that study. You could lead the study. You could just be someone who comes out and participates in the study and prays for other people who are coming to that study. You can be involved in youth work. And we just saw that there's some needs in that area. And I happen to know that there may be some other needs that right now are not public yet in that area. So, you know, youth work is a great opportunity. You can use social media. Whatever it is, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, as an opportunity to seek to be a witness to the Lord or to encourage other believers, you can use, you know, go old school and use tracks. I've been starting to do that more lately. I give out tracks, you know, with a good tip when I'm at a restaurant. Or when, you know, someone comes to work on my air conditioner, air conditioner at home, and sometimes it leads to conversations and opportunities to speak for the Lord. You can look for opportunities to speak to others. And last um, but not least, I think an important message that we can take from this is that God is sovereign. We live in unsettled times. We have leaders who many times we don't, we don't trust them. We don't think that they have our interests or the interests of the country, you know, really at heart. Uh, We think they're out for themselves. That may or may not be true. Um, But the fact is we lived in difficult and unsettled times. Again, how do we deal with that? What's our attitude? I think the attitude that the book of Daniel would teach us is to recognize that God is in control, that he is in control. It doesn't mean don't vote. You know, it doesn't mean any of that. We live in a democracy, use the opportunities you have as the Lord leads you. But it does mean that we recognize that God is in control. And we say, Lord, what attitude do you want me to have here? And there's things we're told to do. We're told to pray for our leaders. That was one of the things we were asked to do earlier. We should actually do that. I mean, let's be honest. How many times do you actually pray for government leaders? I mean, really, like once a month, once a week? I mean, how many times do you actually sit down and and pray for President Biden or or pray for our governor or pray for other leaders? Um, You know, I do. Sometimes, probably not as often as I should, I spend more time worrying about it. I spend more time complaining about it. We should spend more time praying about it and trusting that God is in control, but he has asked us to pray. Um, Also, we should look again for opportunities. The fact that we live in sort of a darkening society gives us opportunities. Back to Philippians, verse 14 of chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We're good at grumbling or disputing, but we're told to do things without that because we know God's in control, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again for your love. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, read this passage in your word. We see the work that you did in this man's life. And, and we've never met him, Lord. He lived um, well over uh, 2,000 years ago, 25, 2600 years ago. Um, but there's a good chance we're gonna meet him in heaven because you did an amazing work in his life. You took a proud, self sufficient, powerful man who had good reason to be proud from an earthly sense and you humbled him and you taught him how much he needed you. Father, uh, Just want to pray that if there's some who are here or some who are listening after the fact to this message, who perhaps they too are proud, self-sufficient, maybe with good reason, that you, Lord, would do a work to show them their great need of you and your great love for them, how you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, who had more reason to be proud than any man who has ever walked the face of this earth. And yet he humbled himself. He humbled himself just in becoming a man. He humbled himself in living the life that he did in dependence upon you. And ultimately, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of a cross, going there for our sake, that there might be a basis upon which our sins have been forgiven. We pray that uh, anyone who knows you not would come to put their faith in you and receive that gift. And Lord, for those of us who have indeed uh, done that, we pray for your continued work to humble us, to show us how much we need you, how great and amazing and wonderful you are. Your deep love for us, your deep wisdom, the fact that your ways are better than our ways, the fact that apart from you, we can do nothing, that we would come to live lives more of dependence, that we would not worry or complain about things, but we would pray instead that we would love and care for others and reach others and be used as your instrument in the lives of others, as you have used others in our lives and as you used Daniel and his friends in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. We thank you for your love in Christ's name. Amen.